three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes. Hi, everybody. I'm Derek Pitts, Chief Astronomer and Planetarium Programs Director at the Franklin Institute Science Museum. I do love science, that's true, but overall, I'm a space nerd and a science fiction nerd, a telescope jockey extraordinaire, and now a podcast host. So often, space science is only talked about in the context of the big things that happen. You know, the solar eclipses, the rocket launches, new discoveries. But there are so many amazing things that happen behind the scenes. The steps that are needed to get to those big things that so often don't make it to the general public. So in this podcast, I'm going to be sitting down with friends and colleagues doing amazing stuff to share what they're working on, our personal stories from working in the field, and what about outer space we find so enthralling that we commit our lives to learning about it. And we're going to start out today with a very, very interesting guest, astronaut Chris Ferguson. Yes, he's an astronaut, but we're not going to ask him about the typical astronaut-astronaut experience. You know, like how do you go to the bathroom in space and stuff like that. We're going to talk to him instead about the human experience as someone who happens to be an astronaut. So often we talk about astronauts in terms of their performance as military pilots and things of that sort related to, you know, being that focused guy, that top gun person. But in this case, we're going to pull back the curtain on his feelings about the experience, how it's impacted him as one of the few humans to travel in space. So Christopher Ferguson is a retired Navy aviator who flew the F-14 Tomcat in various deployments for more than 10 years. During his time in the Navy, Chris attended Navy Fighter Weapons School, what we now know of as Top Gun, and Navy Test Pilot School, where he eventually became an instructor before being selected by NASA for astronaut training in 1998. Chris flew three shuttle missions, first as pilot in 2006 on STS-115, then as commander aboard STS-126 in 2008, and finally as commander of the final space shuttle mission, STS-135, in 2011. He retired from NASA later that year, then switched over to Boeing, where he's director of crew and mission operations in the Boeing Commercial Crew Program. Chris was born and raised in Philadelphia and is part of a strong contingent of astronauts from Pennsylvania. Thanks so much for taking time out to chat with me about your experiences, Chris, as a aviator and an astronaut. Uh, great to be here, Derek, and nice to talk to you again as well. It certainly is. I really do appreciate you doing this. Uh, Chris, I want to jump right in with something about how you may define yourself. You know, your flight experience extensively covers both atmosphere and space. So how do you think of yourself? Are you an explorer? Are you an out of this world, excuse the pun, aviator, or both? Well, I would say by the definition, I'm an explorer. But the truth is, is I haven't been anywhere that nobody has been before. Uh, We're very prevalent in low Earth orbit. And by the way, low Earth orbit is anything below 1,200 miles up. You know, we've had people on space station for about 23 years now. And, you know, I, I sort of prefer to think of myself as a very curious person. I mean, I, I recall, you know, sort of growing up and watching some of the Apollo era stuff. Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Then I got interested in aviation, specifically in the Navy, and thinking, you know, 
how on earth do you land an airplane on an aircraft carrier? You know, how on earth do we get to space and do we get back? And and those things plagued me. And I, and I read as voraciously as I could, but, you know, nothing was going to teach me really how it happened unless I went out and I tried to do it myself. And I never considered myself a risk taker. I don't have a heritage in the military. My, I, have, I think I'm the first one in my family that ever was in the military. But... I was just innately curious about a lot of things, and I thought the best way to learn is to just go do it. I can totally see that. I mean, curiosity is something that drives a lot of people to explore their world more deeply. In all of this experience that you've had trying to, I don't mean to say satisfy your curiosity, but just to like follow that path, can you describe an experience that can only be had by aviators of your level of experience, you've spent a lot of time in the in the seat of the F-14 and also in space shuttle. There must be some experience in there that is just unique to what you do. I'll start with my naval aviation days. There were no two flights that were exactly identical. Everything, you did something different every single time. And, you know, we had the opportunity to just really fly all over the world. And there were a couple memories that are sort of pivotal to that. At the time, this was before the sort of the Cold War ended in the late 80s. And we were still, you know, sort of a hot Cold War, so to speak. And we played this cat and mouse game with the Soviet Union. And and we did a a routine exercise up in the North Atlantic. We transited, you know, south of Greenland over into the fjords of Norway. And the thinking was that, you know, we had some shelter in there. It was a way to uh, sort of tactically approach a war should it ever come to it. What was amazing about it was the most spectacular flying I'd ever done. You know, first of all, if you go up there in the summertime, the sun never goes down. Right, right. And aviators, they really like flying in the daytime. We like arrested landings because they're cool. An arrested landing is one in which some sort of physical mechanism is used to bring an aircraft to a very quick stop. Like, for example, on an aircraft carrier. It actually lands at full speed, full throttle, and a hook on the back of the aircraft is let down to capture one of four cables that are stretched across the deck. The aircraft lands at full speed because if by some chance they might miss those cables, it has to be at a takeoff speed so it can accelerate back up into the air. But we really like them a lot more in the daytime than we do at night. <laughs> right. <laughs> so here, here is unstoppable daytime where you're operating, you know, literally you know, think about a street down in Manhattan where you're like in a canyon of buildings. And when we flew there in the fjords, we were like in a canyon. I mean, it was just the strangest flight operations where you're you're on short final on an aircraft carrier and off to your right, less than a mile away is, you know, sort of a, a path, you know, a mass of land that was carved by a glacier. It was just spectacular to be a part of it. But I have to say that really the the pivotal thing about both my space career and my aviation career is that free out the window view of just about anything. In orbit, flying in and around and through Aurora. So let's take a moment just to talk about Aurora. The Aurora Borealis, also known as the Northern Lights, is actually a space weather phenomenon. It's a little bit complicated, but let's talk through it. So our planet has a very intense magnetic field. We can't really see the magnetic field, but we know it's there and it protects us from some of the damaging radiation that flies around in space. 
Now, as it turns out, our star, our sun, blasts out a tremendous amount of electromagnetic particles that actually interact with the magnetic field. And when they do interact, they actually raise the level of excitation of gas particles in our atmosphere and cause them to glow. Now, for Chris to be able to fly through them, Space Shuttle was flying at an altitude of anywhere between 200 and 400 miles up, and that's high enough for him to be able to fly through the aurora as the spacecraft orbits the Earth. Regular travelers aboard commercial aircraft won't fly through Aurora Borealis because those planes don't fly high enough. I remember seeing these these just blobs of glowing light. And, uh, you know, I hadn't really seen an Aurora much, maybe on that North Atlantic thing I had mentioned, we saw a little bit, but, but here you were, you were actually flying under and around and over these glowing orbs of light. And it was just some of the most uncanny things. One more uncanny experience was getting to fly over a hurricane that I didn't know was there in an orbiter where you typically fly around upside down and backwards in a space shuttle. So when you want to see where you're going, you look out the back window, right? It's a little, you know. Oh, wait, is uh, this the window that's looking out over the cargo bay? Exactly. Okay. Right. Mm -hmm. So you're upside down. Imagine looking out that window where you, you know, if your feet are on the flight deck of the shuttle, you have to look up to see the Earth because, you know, that's where the Earth is. <laughs> right, right. And, and you're looking at where you're headed and you're looking at the tail out the back and you're headed in that direction. And I remember just glancing out the window. I knew there were a couple hurricanes in the Atlantic Ocean, but, you know, I, we really didn't have time to track those kind of things. But just looking out and I thought, what, what on Earth is that? You know, it was this thing I hadn't seen before. And I, I, as I pieced this entire scene together, I realized that we're about ready to fly over a hurricane. And sure enough, I don't, we couldn't have planned it any better. We flew right over the eye of the hurricane and I looked straight down into it. And I thought, this is a view that you cannot buy anywhere on the planet. So there's a couple things that you just, you try to vicariously take people on the road with you and, and try to explain to them you know, the amazing universe that we live in, but there's only so much you can explain. You really have to see that yourself. Yeah, you know, that's perfect, Chris, because I was gonna ask you, we know that your time on orbit is dedicated, committed, almost down to the second, and as well it should be. I mean, these are expensive missions and you have a mission to accomplish and so on and so forth like that. But in those moments or in those blocks of time when you do have some downtime, how does your mind sort of frame up what the experiences you're having. After all, you're, you know, whatever it is, 220 miles above and you're flying along at 17.5 and upside down and backwards and all this sort of stuff. And I was just wondering, what is the frame of mind that you as a flying human have about that experience? So I'll tell you, there's really not a lot of opportunity to look out the window with two exceptions, mm -hmm. okay? The first exception is is shortly after you get into orbit, right? You're actually kind of low. You still have to climb up. In our case, we rendezvoused and docked with the space station, and they hang out at about 400 kilometers, about 220 some odd miles up there. So you're you're not pointing in any particular attitudes. You actually have the opportunity to look out the window at the Earth when it's very close, maybe 120 miles away, and the sensation of speed is almost overwhelming. You look out the window, and it's like, wow, we are really zipping over the ground very quickly and you know of course that's the part of the physics of staying in space is going very quickly but but that's the one chance you really have to sort of appreciate the outside and how fast you're going the other one is uh, typically after we left the space station we 
picked one night, there was always an optimal night to do this where we turned off all the lights because usually you're plagued by light up there and you get a lot of reflection from the glass. And even if you were pointing at the earth, sometimes you get a very modeled view of it, but we turned off all the lights, you get your eyes all dark adapted, and then you just stare at the earth. And it is like, it's like looking at a campfire. You know, you just sometimes can't take your eyes off of it because <laughs> yes. every time you're seeing something new, you recognize it new, you know, you're like, is that a bridge? You know, can I actually see a bridge from here? You know, can I see the pyramids? I see the Suez Canal. You're almost testing yourself. You're like a little kid looking at a globe, only it's the right. real thing. How did I do in geography class? <laughs> and can I pick all this out? And we concluded that you can pick a lot out. But if at any time you're looking down at the earth and you don't know where you are, you're usually over Australia or over China because there's very little recognizable in both of those places. So, you know, you had asked what makes it truly unique. And, and I think it's just that ability to watch the earth in a way that not many people have had the opportunity to do. In the different kinds of work that you have done and are currently doing, I mean, in the work that you're currently doing, you're helping Boeing pull together this new capsule that's going to be a major part of future space exploration. How does the work you've done and the work that you're doing connect the space program of fantasy to the space program of reality or the space program of the future? So when I think about the future of human spaceflight, I mean, to me, the future of human spaceflight sort of stops at Mars, right? I cannot at this point, knowing the limitations that we have, conceive of anything beyond Mars at this point. Unquestionably, whether it's 50, 100 years, we'll be starting to think about how do I go fast enough to get to some place like Europa, you know, or how do I go get fast enough to go to EO? For reference, Europa and Io are both moons of the giant planet Jupiter. It takes just two and a half days to get to the moon, but it takes almost 10 years to get to Jupiter. You know, both just really interesting places within the solar system. But I think of Mars. Now, we're going to spend some time in and around the moon again, which I think is a very good idea because we need a little bit of a, a stepping off point, if you will. I think we need to learn culturally and scientifically what it takes to spend a long time away from home where you don't have a hardware store right around the corner. And you <laughs> right. know, even though we've been living in low earth orbit, we're never much further than six hours away. If there's ever a medical emergency, if there's ever something that we need, you know, we can usually get it sent up from the ground within a couple of weeks or so. We can get people home very quickly if needed. But when you really put your expeditionary hat on, when you really begin to take some of the, I'll call it the risks and the adventures that some of the earlier explorers did by visiting places like Antarctica, that to me is sort of going to the moon. And you're not all the way to Mars, right? You can still come back if you need to, but you're maybe three to five days away and not six months away, which is where you're going to be if, if you're on Mars. But I do see a world where we go and we actually begin to use in situ resources in situ resources are the resources that are already there when you get to the planet. Whether it's forming structures out of lunar regolith. Lunar regolith? That's just the lunar dust and dirt. Which I think is really the only way we're going to build a permanent structure, a permanent habitat there of, of any degree of comfort. 
We've actually set the framework on Mars with Perseverance and the Mars samples that we've collected out there with their core machines to do a sample return mission, mm -hmm. uh, which we hope to do later this decade. We're getting signals from MRO. Touchdown confirmed. Perseverance safely on the surface of Mars, ready to begin seeking the sands of past life. That's going to be a revolutionary step. But what that is really setting the mark for actually creating the propellant that we'll need for our return trip using Martian resources, right? In situ fuel resource development. I'd love to say we can take all the fuel with us to Mars, but I think most physicists would say that we're going to have to get something from the Martian surface. And we're now laying the, the framework for that. Uh, one of my favorite movies was The Martian. I don't think it was necessarily a blockbuster, but I liked it because it was as factual as I think I had ever seen, you know, some of these science fiction, science fantasy movies where everything in there was based on fact. And it was surrounding an individual who, who found himself in an unlucky stranded on Mars situation. And how do I survive? I wouldn't say it's possible, but I'd say it's plausible. And the creativity of the human mind can be employed to find ways to just make it work. You're six months away from hope. And even that, you're probably years away from a rescue mission. How do you use your common sense to survive in a hostile environment like that? You know, I think the character Mark Watney said it correctly when he said, we're going to science the shit out of this. <laughs> and uh, I thought that was a great line. It was a great line, right? And just to add to that, I had Jim Green at the Franklin Institute a couple of years ago. Jim Green was a chief scientist at NASA and was an advisor on the film The Martian. Not long after the film came out, he was in with two other people. I think they were from the film and they stopped by Franklin to do something. And I did ask him, like I'm sure everybody else asked, was that idea about being able to cultivate potatoes in Martian soil, is that actually feasible? And I'm sure you, you know, you've heard him say before, yeah, that is completely feasible that that could be. And I think that really does open the doors for a much greater possibility of uh, people thinking about really doing Mars in the future than it ever had been before. But I think it also helps to drive home the point that, yes, you can actually do a lot of problem solving. If you have a good training in science, you can make this stuff happen. Well, let me ask you, Chris, do you ever think we'll get to a point where we're actually building spacecraft in space? rather than building spacecraft on Earth and then have to do all the heavy lifting off the planet, going against the propulsion laws and all that sort of stuff. You think we'll actually get to building stuff in space? Absolutely. I don't think we have a choice because if you look at what we're gonna have to take to Mars on our big long field trip, first of all, you can't launch it all in one mission. Now you could probably argue that Apollo in a way, I mean, they had several modules, but they were essentially self-contained, right? They weren't dependent on more than one mission. We're not going to be able to do that going to Mars. We're, we're likely going to have to pre-deploy a Mars transfer vehicle. We're going to have to pre-deploy fuel depots in space. So pre-deploy means we're going to have to have another spacecraft to take us from the Earth's environment out to Mars. And we're also going to have to have out there waiting in space gas stations, if you will, to refill those spacecraft as they make their way out to Mars. There's work going on on that now, you know, because if you think about it, I mean, anything that is long distance, whether it's over an open ocean or, you know, in aviation, we refuel ourselves en route. So I think that we're gonna have to create a stepping off point 
which is likely what the gateway will become if you're familiar with that it's going to be sort of a a smaller space station like thing serving the moon mm -hmm. but i think that's going to probably end up being our stepping off point to mars and therefore that will probably be the assembly point and the refueling point won't be far away for the our big leap off to mars so it's just you know with chemical propulsion that we have today it's going to be hard to package it all into just a few launches we're going to have to come up with some really novel nuclear or some other propulsion technique if we're going to cram it all into one rocket but with what we have today we're going to have to take multiple different flights that sort of coalesce in one area and it's going to be the final push from base camp up to the peak of everest right how did our steel star manage to spend so much time in space our steel star yeah you know oh, remember oh, the, from, the chris, from the planetarium chris this star showed yes. up on my desk a year ago That's... mysteriously and i was like where the hell did this come from and then i read the certificate and thought wow i had no idea well since chris didn't know what i was talking about i'll bet you'd like to know too the steel star was actually that it was a five-pointed star about four inches in diameter from star point to star point that we actually sent to space. Now, it looks like just a steel star, but it actually was a steel star that was made from the original dome of the Fels Planetarium from 1934. We'll link in the show notes a picture of me holding it so you can see what it looks like. Thank you very much for doing that. <laughs> You're very welcome. We have a very creative communications team here, and uh, my hope was to carry that into space, probably, I think, for the third time on a Boeing vehicle. Yeah. And, uh, for reasons that are probably too deep to go into here, it made the ride by itself. Uh, in other words, I didn't go with it, but it went and it was our comms team. They asked me, they said, hey, who should we take stuff from? I said, well, you got to call Derek at the Franklin Institute, right? Because we've carried this star a couple times and a few other things. I think we actually took a little Ben Franklin too. Nice. <laughs> but, uh, but that's how it happened. I'm not sure who talked to who, but we got the star again and we flew it on our first test flight a year and a half ago. And you know what, Chris? Certainly in the history of science museums, there isn't another artifact for which that has been the case. And I like to think of it as being extraordinarily unique because of the fact that it was on so many different spacecraft and because it was on STS-135. I mean, you know, 135 is really the one I'm really proud and happy about. STS-135. That was the very last space shuttle mission. I really do owe you a lot for doing that, so thanks. I'll buy you a pretzel when you come to the Franklin Institute. Hey, we should add up together. You know, that star's got a lot of miles on it. It does. That star might have 250 million miles on it. I think it probably does. Yeah. Yeah. Very well traveled. Here's my last question for you. For someone like yourself, with so much experience, what are the follow-on career choices? I mean, you're pretty much overqualified for everything, Chris. So, <laughs> so I'm, not, I'm not specifically asking about you, what you're going to do next. I'm asking someone like you that has had these extraordinary experiences and these unique opportunities, what are the kinds of career opportunities or choices that you think about going forward? Boy, that's a great question, Derek, because I am sort of at the tail end of my time with Boeing. But I am not done doing whatever it is I'm going to continue doing. You know, I, I, certainly my spaceflight days are over. 
but I think you alluded to it. You know, I have a lot of interesting experiences, I think, that others can benefit from in one way or another, whether it's simple storytelling. But what I have a passion for right now is, I'll call it space flight safety. You know, I mean, it's, it's a risky environment. And if you look at what has made commercial aviation so safe after all these years, in the 50s, you know, commercial aviation accidents were all too routine. Now, they're almost non-existent. I read somewhere that if you drive from Philadelphia to Florida a thousand miles, the chances of getting hurt in a car per passenger mile are a thousand times greater than the chances of getting hurt in an airplane. I mean, we have really gotten to the point that we are just so very safe in aviation. And if we want to extend that so people can really enjoy spaceflight, and it becomes a place where it's not limited to the couple hundred or so that have been there, we're going to have to really turn the corner on spaceflight safety. And of course, the, the riskiest parts are the launch and the re-entry because you're dealing with, you know, high pressure turbo machinery. It's, it's high pressures, high temperatures on multiple levels. We really test physics. The question is, how can we do this in a safer fashion? So that is sort of where my passion lies. And uh, I'm working with a safety organization at Boeing and probably will continue well after I retire. But I, I want to look for other ways to tell the message that if we want to have space flight for the masses, we're going to have to start making some significant changes to make it to the point that everybody feels comfortable that when they do it, they're going to come home safe. I think your ability to tell stories is going to go a long way to help make that happen for the masses to be able to experience spaceflight. But I think at the same time, your experience really counts tremendously in uh, helping to make spaceflight that much safer. It's an imperative thing to do, and uh, anything that can be done to drive down the risk, I think everybody is happier about that. So that's great. Okay, Chris, thank you very much for taking the time. I really do appreciate this, and I think I'm I'm going to get to see you. And uh, you know, it's funny. I just got an invitation. I don't even know. Uh, it's is it the opening, the grand opening? It's of the a, grand of opening. Exhibit? Yeah. Yes, I wouldn't miss it for the world. So thank you for thinking of me, and I do hope to see you then. Absolutely, we look forward to it. Thank you again for Chris for taking the time to sit and chat with me. And like he said, in November, we're opening a brand new space exhibit at the Franklin Institute. Stay tuned for more news about that coming up soon. And you know, as I think about chatting with Chris, I really enjoy hearing him talk about the human side of being a space traveler. What's it like to be out there? What do you see? What do you feel? What do you think about? I think these human aspects are really important in this new way of exploring. But I also have a great deal of respect for his efforts to drive down the risk of space exploration, to get that risk as close to zero as possible. I also really think about what he said about traveling out in our solar system. With our current technology, we might not be able to go far, but we certainly will be able to do a lot in as far as we can go. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time. This podcast is made in partnership with Radio Kismet, Philadelphia's premier podcast production studio. This podcast is produced by Amy Carson. The Franklin Institute's director of digital editorial is Joy Montefusco, and Aaron Armstrong runs marketing, communications, and digital media. Head of operations is Christopher Plant. Our mix engineer is Justin Berger, and I'm Derek Pitts, chief astronomer and director of the Fells Planetarium at the Franklin Institute, and your host for this podcast. Thanks so much for listening.